Bookcraft is pleased to present Bethlehem by Dr. Truman G. Madsen from the series Jesus of Nazareth. Bethlehem, city of David. Today one can view the little town of Bethlehem from a height to the north, Ramat Rachel, a high place named after the ancient Rachel, who, while traveling into what was then called Ephrat, died in childbirth, bearing the son of her right side, Binyamin. Now, centuries later, another mother, Mary, comes to Bethlehem to give life, and at the risk of her own. Hardly another place in Palestine is so productive as is the area of Bethlehem. It remains to this day a center for the raising of olives, figs, grapes, corn, and of course also of cattle and sheep. Water flowed from this city northward through what were known as the Pools of Solomon to give life to the city of Jerusalem. Much today of the city of Jerusalem is visible from Bethlehem, but one must travel southward slightly in order to see the ancient city. This is the city where David had been anointed, as is recorded in 1 Samuel. It was the home of Ruth and Boaz, and both Mary and Joseph had been natives of this little town and had relatives here. In the time of Jesus, it was a walled city. It had been fortified by David's grandson, Rehoboam, way back in the 10th century. Now, of the many messianic prophecies, the one that specifically mentions this place is Micah, who says, Ephrat, or Bethlehem, the least among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. So much for the setting. What of the star? It may be neither mythical nor miraculous. There are Chinese records which show that a tailless comet, or what we would now call a nova, appeared in March of the year 5 B.C. and again in April of the year 4 B.C. Herod, we know, died between March and April of 4 B.C. The Nova may have been the new star that drew the attention of both the prophets, the shepherds, and the wise men. Visiting there today with the advantage of modern scripture, one feels immediately three changes in the story that everyone knows. We learn first that it was not midwinter, but early spring when Jesus was born. Not the cold and rainy and snowy time, for there still occasionally is snow in Jerusalem. It was in April, in the seventh month of the Hebrew lunar calendar, which is called Nisan. At the sesquicentennial of the church on April 6, 1980, we were present surrounding a large fire in what we call Shepherd's Fields,
There were Bedouin sheep and goats, and we could look southward across the valley to Bethlehem. Nearby were the ruins of an ancient Roman mansion, and still the traces of ancient olive trees, huge cisterns for oil and wine, and a donkey. The larger Bethlehem was atop the rise to the south, and the sense that it was at the initiation of spring rather than amidst snow was overwhelming. We then looked upward, and that led us to a second awareness. The stars are still clear in a sky that is relatively unpolluted. We could see Ursa Major and noticed that the cup formed in the constellation was pointed down, as if to suggest the divine blessing downward in this season of the year. A third glimpse came from the Joseph Smith translation of Luke 2, the classic story of Christmas. Every child knows the phrase, there was no room at the inn. But the modern translation is, there was none to give room for them in the inns. The place was crowded, but the problem was not really space. It was, as always, a problem of heart, a problem of those who surely could have given a cot or a place to a woman who was struggling in labor. Now in Bethlehem, according to a later tradition, the manger was actually a cave. This idea goes back to Justin Martyr, about 150 A.D. Not a large barn or stable, but a cave and manger is properly understood to be a feeding trough. Shepherds to this day still seek the shade or the shelter of caves for their sheep, and the caves function as a sort of fold overnight. Sometimes houses are built in front of caves, and the cave may be the back room of such a house. Perhaps Mary was taken to such a place away from confusion. Now, for a moment, let's look at some of the symbols that emerge from the story and the setting. Here was a son who would become known as the life of the world, and he was born in a season of new life. Here was a man who would call himself and be recognized as the light of the world born in a season when light was increasing. Here was a man who would be a shepherd, the good shepherd, born in a feeding trough amidst shepherds who watched their flocks by night, a lamb, as it were, born in the midst of lambs, a lamb eventually to be slain. Here was a man who was to be known as the manna from heaven, the bread of life, born in Beit Lechem, or Bethlehem, meaning in Hebrew, house of bread, or in Arabic, of flesh. Here was a man who was the son of David, the prince who would become king, born in the city of David where David himself had been anointed king. He was to be the bright and morning star, born under a new star amidst heavenly light.
the kavod, as it is said in Hebrew, which refers to the glory of God. He would stand and testify that he had come to bring abundant life and born in the richest, most fertile area of the land of Palestine. He would call himself the true vine, and he was born above the terraced and fruitful vineyards of the Bethlehem Hills. He would say he was living water, born near Solomon pools that furnished in a causeway water to Jerusalem. And there are also juxtapositions in all of this, for he who was to be above all now became the lowliest amidst lowly shepherds. He who would be Prince of Peace is yet born in the midst of Roman conquest, conflict, unrest, and tension, only a few miles out of the city, known for centuries as the City of Peace, and yet through war to be destroyed and rebuilt so far 27 times. He was a deliverer, and yet shortly with his parents would be forced to flee for his very survival. I speak now for a moment of a nearby and visible monument. It's the stately citadel or volcano-like structure built by Herod apparently about uh, 15 years before the birth of Jesus. One can still climb atop this place and have an extensive view in every direction of the Judean desert. Well, it was built by the Herod, the great builder himself, and the paranoid and almost viper-like murderer, Herod, who eventually would destroy innocent children in Bethlehem. It was symbolic of his own victories and of his cruel domination. And strangely, in later history, it was the place where Bar Kokhba, who led a strong but eventually abortive rebellion, would place his headquarters, a place to be known as Herodian. Here again, Jesus is born near the emblems and the rubble of war. And now we turn to Mary. The Annunciation, which took place far north in the little town of Nazareth, little because most estimates say that no more than 25 families lived there at the time. The Annunciation, which had first surprised and awed her, and then became incredible to Joseph, had had its fulfillment. In modern times, a play has been written by Clinton Larson, which is simply titled Mary. And the climactic scene, the dramatic moment, is when Elizabeth and Mary meet. The parallels between the preparation, the life, and even the spiritual promises of John, as distinct from Jesus, are overwhelming and are pointed out in great detail, especially in the Gospel of Luke. Both mothers had high aspirations, as did all Jewish women in that era, for motherhood, and wondered if they would be so blessed. 
both had reason to doubt that this could happen and then were given divine assurance that it would. Each became linked to the other because each had spiritual and revelatory knowledge from on high. And when it was realized by Elizabeth that the child within her who leapt at the very presence of the mother of Jesus would be a forerunner, an Elias, they became one in spirit and in love. Isaiah, centuries before, had spoken of the promise of the Messiah in images that often refer to the glory of a mother, the tenderness, the sensitivity, and even the power of nourishment are all by Isaiah made symbolic of the future Jerusalem and of the role of the Messiahs. I put an S on the Messiahs because several Messianic figures were anticipated in Jewish lore and have been underlined and in some ways clarified by the recent discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Some scholars suppose that these multiple strands of messianic prophecy really were intended to apply only to one person. Others suppose that in the community there were different factions and that each had its own preferential strand of expectation. And still others, and the translations of Joseph Smith move in this direction, suggest that at least a precursor or forerunner Messiah must be distinguished from the son of David, the Messiah ben Judah, who was to come. In any case, all through the literature, motherhood is glorified. And as the ancient Sarah was given the blessing late in life of not only begetting a son, but nurturing him, and as, according to Jewish lore, every line in her face disappeared because she dated her own life, her own actual birthday, as being identical with her son. And from then on, when asked, how old are you, answered in terms of the age of Isaac. So Elizabeth, heretofore barren, is now blessed. And now Mary is coming to the full fruition of her motherhood. The distance from the north to the south is in excess of 65 miles, at least a three-day journey, walking, and even if one rode on a small animal. The ride on any small animal would be a jostling and difficult ride. And so it surely was hard for her to have come that long distance, ascended to Jerusalem, and then be denied any place. Going on south would have been a further difficulty. Do we really know the exact place where Jesus was born? Well, we go back in history to the empress known as Helen, the mother of Constantine. In the 300s, long after the time of Jesus, she came armed with helpers and with a great fortune behind her. And in the zeal of her own Christian conversion, she inquired 
of all the traditions, all the hearsay, and especially in sites that the vicinity had been clearly established for. And Bethlehem was one such site. As she consulted with those who had lived in the area for a long time, there became a kind of consensus that at or near a grotto or cave, Jesus had come into the world. And when such a cave was identified, then began the building of a monumental church, which has remained, though sometimes it has had to be radically rebuilt, until our time. It's now known as the Church of the Nativity. Today, it's possible on Christmas Eve to see, gathered in the front courtyard of the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, celebrant Christians who are honoring this ancient event. To enter the church is difficult because a small arch is the only mode apparently built to protect its entry uh, from horsemen. In any case, one must stoop to enter. And then he is in a combined church, both Greek Orthodox and adjacent to it, a Roman Catholic church. And as he walks behind the area of the altar with its elaborate icons and crucifix, he sees stairs descending, and on the other side, stairs ascending. And through those passageways, literally millions of Christians and pilgrims have come over the centuries. It has been luxuriously embellished with the jewelry, the precious metals, the lamps and candles, and other relics of the past. Many, I suppose, can be put off by what is now there, and hardly able, therefore, to remember what was. But I have repeatedly asked those who have attended me in such a place to grant me a personal favor, and that is to be totally silent. Many come and speak animatedly, many come and sing traditional hymns, but in our case we simply stand in silence, and that can be a heavy silence, and one is overwhelmed with the reverence for this moment, and whether it is the exact place or not almost ceases to matter. Standing there one day with President Hubie Brown, then in his 89th year, I became conscious of how the experience of decades, the weight of a long life, can increase rather than decrease one's love for the child. A strange reversal happens at Christmas time. We who have worshipped and centered our whole lives in a glorious person, adult, suddenly find ourselves standing, as it were, as adults looking at an infant. President Brown, I could see from his face and later from his comments, felt that kind of veneration. 
Whether or not we have the exact location, what we have is the vicinity, and whether or not we care to exactly identify the time and place, somehow, for those who go, there is the recognition of life and of life coming into the world in the humility of a stable and of life emerging from that that can transform all lives. I've mentioned that Rachel had been in travail and Genesis tells us she had had hard labor. There are a few negative connotations to this word in Hebrew. The word for travail is yalad, and it means at least three things, to beget, to bear, and to bring forth. But related to those ideas is the idea of lineage. And to this day, in tradition, one knows for sure whether one can claim a lineage if and only if his mother is of a given uh, tribe. No one can doubt the connection between a mother and her delivered child. There may be doubt about the father. So Mary, in that mode, is giving the lineage of Judah to her son. And in the Greek word, that is like a seed growing or a plant maturing or the earth itself bringing forth. Now, was Jesus himself thinking of his own mother in later life when he spoke of the similarity and this to the twelve just before his departure for Gethsemane and said the following words a woman when she is in travail hath sorrow because her hour is come but as soon as she is delivered of the child she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. One of the questions often raised about Mary who has received in other traditions not only veneration but something akin to worship is how is it that any mother can go through these struggles and how is it that she can love her children even the most miserable or disobedient or errant of her children. And one answer to the question is that love emerges from genuine suffering and sacrifice. I've occasionally said in a cynical mode that all the books that have been written on painless childbirth have been written by men and that mother love can exceed father love precisely because the mother has gone through the difficulties of gestation and delivery and never again can be totally indifferent. Isaiah asked anciently, can a mother forget her nursing child? And he answers, yes, she may, but the implication is rarely. And then he goes on to say, the love of the Messiah or the love of God for man cannot be broken. And again, it emerges from suffering.
This concludes the recording on this side of the cassette. You may continue the program by turning the cassette over.